So you have a totally new smart home read. Do you have any of these smart devices in your home? Uh, smart bed, no. Smart toilet, no. What about the smart hairbrush? It has a microphone built in and sensors to determine the health of your hair. It also tracks your brushing patterns, <laughs> along with recommendations to an app on your smartphone. Like literally tracks your brushing patterns. Is that, is that a need? It sends a full report. <laughs> a full report of what? Of your hair brushing habits. I feel like Marsha Brady came up with this. Welcome to Touchpoint, a podcast dedicated to discussions on digital marketing and digital patient engagement strategies for hospitals, healthcare systems, and physician practices. In this podcast, we'll dive deep into a variety of topics on the digital tools, solutions, strategies, and processes that are impacting our industry today. We hope to share a lot of great information and have fun along the way. And now, here are your hosts, Reed Smith and Chris Boyer. All right, welcome back to Touchpoint. This is episode number 130 with your co-hosting team of Reed Smith and Chris Boyer. How's it going? Pretty good. You might say we're the directionless duo. Directionless duo. There you go. (laughs) My favorite co-host of all podcasts that I do. (laughs) How are you, Reed? Settling in well there in Nashville? I am. Yeah, it's great. Work is good. Uh, staying busy. Lots of fun uh, and exciting things happening. Good to be here. Weather was nice this weekend. Got some projects done. Well, always a good time to record with you. Absolutely. Well, a uh, quick plug for our podcast and the others on the Touchpoint Network. Uh, you can find out more about what we're doing, uh, as well as all the other show hosts over at touchpoint.health. Rate, review, subscribe over on Apple Podcasts or wherever you happen to be listening. Just uh, we appreciate the support. The TPS report over on the website. Sign up for that as well. Comes out every Monday morning. Sign up. Great aggregated news from around the industry. Don't want to miss that. And the other thing you don't want to miss, paying a little respect for some of our sponsors. So before we get started in today's episode, Reed, let's take a little break and we will be right back. Using powerful AI-driven algorithms, Loyal's Guide helps patients along every step of their journey, from choosing a doctor and finding the nearest location to signing up for an event or clinical trial. Whether you are using Guide's chatbot, live chat, or the powerful combination of both, Loyal's engaging platform integrates seamlessly into your system, maximizes efficiency, and improves patients' digital experience. To learn more or schedule a demo, visit them online at loyalhealth.com forward slash demo. That is loyalhealth.com forward slash demo. All right, so today we are going to talk a little bit about nature or nurture or nature versus nurture or nurture versus nature. Anyway, (laughs) all all of the above. (laughs) All of the above. That's right. That's right. So a lot of people obviously have heard of this used in different ways when you're talking specifically about marketing, more maybe more specifically sales and marketing. 
Uh, but you hear a lot about lead nurturing. Even more and more in the hospital marketing suite, are we hearing about nurturing, lead nurturing, nurturing people along the journey? And so we thought today would be a good uh, time to kind of jump in and just go a little deep into the topic about nurturing itself. And of course, Reed, we turn to some of the experts, some of the people that are very well known for nurturing, the whole concept of nurturing. And so there's a couple of articles today, first from Marketo. Yes. Marketo is a marketing automation tool, and that's what they do. They do nurturing. And the second is HubSpot. Both great resources. Uh, if nothing else, just a side plug, uh, go check out their sites. A lot of great information there. White papers, case studies, blog posts, that kind of stuff. So turning first to Marketo, and we'll link to their blog post here, Uh, They have a blog post called What is Lead Nurturing? And they actually have a really nice definition. And we always like to start our episodes, Reed, with a definition. So why don't we go through and and define what lead nurturing actually is? Well, fundamentally, again, according to this article, lead nurturing is the process of developing relationships with buyers. And so buyers mean a number of different things, but they're talking specifically at every stage through what's uh, historically called like a sales funnel. And so each step within that funnel as you kind of make your way down um, is a lot of times what we call the buyer's journey. We talk, you know, talk about journey mapping. You've heard us talk about that previously. This is what we're really looking at, you know, awareness through the actual transactional piece. And this is how do you build and have that rapport with people throughout that journey? I think that in healthcare, the, the definition of a sale is a little bit different, and we'll get to that in a, in a little bit. But when you're talking about lead nurturing, you're, the marketing and communication efforts, you typically focus on two things. First of all, listening to the needs of prospects, really understanding what people want. So we, heard, we talk about that a lot, Reed, right, about getting the voice of your customer and trying to understand that. And the second is providing the information and the answers that they need, in a sense, Lead nurturing can be seen as like an experience-related effort, don't you think? I do, and I've got a great example of this. Um, As we've mentioned uh, exhaustively, uh, I've moved to Nashville. And so because of that, you know, you end up buying new things for the house, right? Whether it's, you know, window coverings or anyway, we we ended up with kind of a bonus room, uh, playroom for the kids. And so we moved our television in there. So we we were going to purchase a new television. I did a fair amount of research online. Uh, I knew exactly what I wanted. Big plug for Best Buy here in their app. You could, there's actually a, a a VR function where you you can choose the TV you like and then use VR with your phone to see how it's going to look in your room. I determined, yeah, okay, this is the TV I want. Look. Again, through the app. Oh, good. It's in stock. So a buddy who was in town, he and I hop in the car, run over there, uh, walk in. And of course, you know, they're having sales, right? And they've got, they actually have the television like out in the aisle. You know how they like pile up stuff in the aisle, you know, around these stores sure, or whatever, right? Sure. The person working there is standing next to the television just coincidentally. So he sees us walking towards him and he's like, oh, hey, welcome in. What can I do for you guys? And I was like, I'd like to buy that television. I could tell it caught him off guard. And he was like, uh, well, do you, you want to look around a little bit? Or, you know, I was like, no, <laughs> I, I want to buy this television. <laughs> okay. What well, you need a sound bar or any, any sort of, no, no, I just want to buy this television. All right. Well, what the protection plan is a two year. I was like, it, can I buy the television or is that, is that not, is it not for sale? <laughs> like what's the, what are we doing here? And so the point being is like listening to the needs of the prospects 
And then providing them with information and answers that they need is important because a lot of times we get so caught up in the regimented process of what we think we're supposed to do, we're not taking into account, which is the nurturing portion of this. We're not taking into account what they're asking for, what they need, where they're going, et cetera. In the example that you described, obviously your buyer's journey, so to speak, was much more abbreviated. And when you're starting to build out nurturing programs, you want to give people the ability to identify what they need and give them what they need at any point in time. And But you know, on average, Reed, Marketo did a study, 50% of the leads in any system are with people that are not ready to buy. So not me in the television, right? <laughs> no, but no, absolutely. Actually, you know, I would have thought it would have been higher than that. Um, just because, I mean, if you think about how many, we always talk about percentages and numbers and ROI, et cetera, et cetera. Well, to get to the very bottom of that funnel, you know, it, it takes a lot being dumped in the top, right? To get stuff out the bottom. And so it would seem to reason that, in, in a lot, or maybe most cases, people are not yet ready to buy. And so how do you deal with that, right? Another stat in here, almost 80% of new leads never become sales. Wow. New leads. Now that's closer to the number you were thinking, right? Right, right. These are leads that come in, they, they identify themselves as, hey, I'm kind of interested. You actually qualify them as being part of like a, a journey of some sort, right? If you're doing marketing automation. And almost 80% of those new leads never become a sales. That's kind of crazy, but also not surprising. Because uh, Marketo, in this article, they talk about the fact that companies that excel at lead nurturing and understand how to nurture people through the funnel the right way, they generate 50% more sales-ready leads, and they do it at a 33% lower cost just by nurturing. And again, along those lines, you know, those who are nurtured, the people that are actually being taken care of, and it's kind of that personalization and you know, nurturing, those people are making 47% larger purchases than the people that are, just, I guess, kind of just left to their own accord. Again, outside of you buying TVs... <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I could make the case that, that I was nurtured. You know, I mean, there were things that, I mean, I knew I wanted a television, right? And I knew Best Buy was going to have a, a great selection and probably have it readily available for me, right? So it kind of checked a few boxes. And so then it really just came down to user reviews. And quite honestly, that VR piece, because I really thought I would buy a larger television. So this, is, this kind of goes counterintuitive to what we just read. I thought I was going to buy a larger television than I ended up buying. So I thought I would spend more money than ultimately I did. But over time, I'm probably going to go back and spend more money on things. And so you, you are now a loyal customer. And we'll talk about that. But before we get into some you know ways, another article about some effective ways that you can do lead nurturing, do you know where lead nurturing came from, Reed? I don't. No. Well, it was a couple of episodes ago, you mentioned it was emails, right? And you said emails was the first place where we actually started personalizing things. Right, right. Emails actually were the first place where we actually started to do lead nurturing too, because they invented something a a couple of years ago called drip marketing. And that's basically when someone uh, didn't open your email, that the email system would send an automatic follow-up email at a set, set point of time. 
that was the very first instance of lead nurturing. And since then, it has subsequently grown to become very, very sophisticated, which leads us to the second article that we're going to look at today that's from HubSpot called Seven Amazing Effective Lead Nurturing Tactics. And as we go through this, read, reflect back on your experience looking for the TV and see if they did lead nurturing along the way for you. The first one is uh, targeted content. Uh, Leads nurtured with targeted content produce an increase in sales opportunities of more than 20%. We talk about retargeting a lot, right? And you hear about targeted content a lot, but is that really what they're talking about? Yeah. I mean, obviously, of course, first of all, is to understand what that unique buyer persona is. So in your case, maybe looking through the Best Buy app as you're looking through, you know, clicking on different things, it knew right away that you're looking for a TV. So the next time you come to the app, did it present that targeted content to you? The TV was right there, front front page of the app? Yeah, it, it does. And I mean, it, obviously, a lot of people do the recently viewed items, if you will. So if you clicked on things historically, when you go back, which is great because a lot of times you may be coming back to say, I wonder if it's on sale now. Oh, I happen to be standing here in my house. How big was that television? Not not the, you know, is it a 50 or 55 inch or 60 or whatever, but like the actual dimensions of the television, you know, you maybe you're wanting to measure or whatever. Does it work with, you know, fill in the blank piece of technology, whatever it is, you know, you're going back and kind of doing that, that kind of factual, you know, research, if you will. If you're doing really effectively nurturing, you're going to create an assortment of targeted content designed to nurture your different personas based on their different needs. There are different goals or objectives or even marketing triggers. Typically, when you first start down uh, creating a lead nurturing uh, journey, so to speak, you might pick like people that are have to be nurtured in a long cycle and then always give them at every touch point a way for them to make the sale. And the reason why you do that is because you don't know your audiences yet. But the more you do this, you can start to build more sophisticated journeys and more sophisticated targeted content along the way. The second item here, uh, multi-channel lead nurturing. Uh, they talk about four out of five marketers say that email open rates do not exceed 20%. So you have to kind of start thinking outside of the inbox. Uh, <laughs> is there a rim <laughs> shot there or something? Anyway, I, I am happy to report though on the TPS report. Uh, we have uh, a much higher open rate than 20%. So just, just saying. But anyway, you, you, I mean, you, you got to do more than, it's got to be a combination, right? Like you can't just rely on, I'm going to send out a bunch of emails. I mean, you've got to do some paid retargeting, maybe some social media on the organic and the paid side. You, you, we've talked about the dynamic web content. Um, you know, your marketing automation, you know, kind of comes into play here. All the personalization stuff we talked about a few episodes back. When you talk about direct outreach, too, that's a big part of this as well. With online appointment scheduling, oftentimes people don't complete the journey with the online appointment scheduling tool because they get confused. Well, giving them the ability to do direct sales outreach, and that's either inbound where they call, or if you're more sophisticated, doing outbound calls, calling them if they you know drop off the, the journey, so to speak, that could really be effective. But you have to really make sure that marketing and these other departments are well aligned and working cohesively. And in hospitals and health systems, it's typically, uh, you know, your call center or your patient access center, right? 
know, I guess it kind of depends on the size of the organization, certainly. So, you know, there's different people that I guess could play some of those roles, but yeah, absolutely. Well, let's keep going down this list of seven of these, but why don't we take a brief pause and be right back after this break. You care about simplifying the way your healthcare organization does business, and so do we. At Scorpion, our mission is to empower our clients to focus on things that really matter by giving them a simple, powerful, effective suite of marketing solutions for their healthcare digital presence. To learn more, visit us online at scorpion.co. Okay, Reed, we talked about, we're going through an article right now, the seven amazing effective lead nurturing tactics. Number one was targeted content. Number two is multi-channel lead nurturing. The third thing on the list is multiple touches. They say here in this HubSpot article that we'll link to in the show notes, prospects receive an average of 10 touches from the time they enter the top of the funnel until they're a closed one customer. 10 touch points. Is that crazy? No, I don't think it's crazy. I, I wonder how closely that aligns with with what we see in, in healthcare. I mean, you have obviously the the episodic stuff, you know, the emergencies, if you will. I mean, that's that's different. So I'm not talking about that. But if you look at some of the consumer driven stuff, bariatrics, sleep, maybe joint replacement, things like that. I don't know. Do you think that's high or low for for that kind of stuff? Well, I, you know, the answer to that is probably I don't know, because in each journey, there may be multiple different ways that you can actually go down that research. I I assume that on a more complicated journey, like, you know, determining whether your health system is a great place for cancer treatment or not, that is probably a little bit more sophisticated. And I also assume that if you're just picking an urgent care center, that it's probably much quicker. They say on average, though, is 10 touches. And here's the other thing. A demand gen research study suggested that 49% of marketers, that's about half of the marketers out there, they only include less than five touches in their lead nurturing programs. Is that a missed opportunity? I still, I'm I'm not sure. It's like I kind of oscillate back and forth on the 10 thing, if that seems like more or less. Not being clinical, but having run a fair amount of these campaigns, I was trying to do the math in my head. Well, think about all the different touch points, right? Like there's social media, there's Google, potentially blog posts, white papers. Maybe you do some interactive calculators or HRAs like we're going to hear about later on in the show with our interview. Direct mail. If you start to tie all of these different tactics together as well as email, it potentially could be that many touch points. The other thing, Reed, which leads us to the fourth one is that the odds of a lead entering a sales process or becoming qualified are 21 times greater when you're contacted within five minutes after you indicate that you're interested in something. Oh, yeah, that didn't happen. There ain't no way. That's the whole strike while the iron's hot kind of thing, right? I mean, you downloaded the thing or, you know, the white paper, for example, or the free resource or, you know, whatever it is. I've seen real estate agents do this, you know, where you see the sign out in front of the house and it says for more information, you know, text this number, you know, and you get the automated response back. You know, then you actually get a phone call from the real estate agent within probably five minutes. There you go. Obviously, this is all automated, but they find out that you've texted. They call you because they know you're physically driving in front of that house and probably still in that neighborhood. It's kind of striking where the iron's hot, you know, versus you leave the neighborhood, you think more about it, you see something you like better, you know, and they've kind of lost that opportunity. 
you know, 30 minutes later. So I understand that. I just don't know. Boy, that's that's a that's a pretty big lift. But you do know that we do have systems now that if you do something online, let's say you take an online health risk assessment or you download a white paper, you usually get an email right after that that comes to your inbox that has that information just to make sure you have it. And it has some additional callback information or additional information to contact the company. And in the very least, you're getting an email from them. That in and of itself is a way to get a timely follow-up if you think about it. Yeah, if you want to count that. I mean, I guess guess that's true. (laughs) But number five goes into personalized emails. Generate up to six times higher revenue per email than non-personalized emails. Yes, I, I agree in generality. But have we just gotten jaded, though, and we expect for everything to be personalized? And does it really make a difference at this point? I was actually questioning that myself, too, because it seems like every email I get, even from spam emails, even if they have 70 emojis in the subject line of their email, which is driving me crazy lately, all these spam emails have my name in them already because they're getting it from my email address. If they have your email address, they have your name. So personalized has to has like a much higher bar here, I think. You really want to spend time understanding what the appropriate type of touch point it is and, and what the appropriate level of personalization you need at that particular touch point. If you get that email that comes right after you downloaded something, you probably want to say, by the way, here's the link of the thing you just downloaded, just to have it on reference and have the appropriate personalization tied into that. But you don't want to go right away and say, hey, looks like you downloaded something. Call me up or I'm going to call you so you can buy. Yeah, I mean, I think this is that that idea that like the simple text only, I guess, or plain text emails are performing well. You know, it, it's personalization by not kind of a thing, right? Direct Mail did this, right? They, they went back to just the plain white envelope and it's still printed, but it looks like handwriting, <laughs> you know? But it's not. This is kind of that same thing. It's like it's a game, right? Like how do you get people to to engage? So the sixth thing on the list, six out of the seven, is lead scoring. Have you ever done lead scoring before, Reed? Uh, to some degree. Well, it's a methodology used to rank prospects against a scale that represents the perceived value that each lead represents to the organization. You know, as you start to begin your journey, and maybe you're at the early stages of doing marketing automation, you don't have enough historic information to appropriately lead score. But still, you should try to implement some kind of lead scoring system to determine if what you're doing is actually getting you some value. Because they say 68% of successful marketers cite lead scoring based on content and engagement as the most effective tactic for improving revenue contribution. Wow. I mean, I, yes, I, I do. I do think we qualify leads to some degree. Maybe it's not true lead scoring. We may do that in an Excel spreadsheet. Maybe you're using something like a HubSpot or, you know, more of an enterprise uh, CRM in, in your qualifying those folks, right? So again, back to the consumer driven service lines, take bariatrics, you have people come in, they go to like a seminar or support group that, you know, what's whatever's required by insurance. And it's, you know, a good way to learn. And the people that attend, I mean, lead scoring is happening. We're probably not calling it that. Yeah, absolutely. Or making it that exact, right? I I don't think we're standardized lead scoring across the industry, not quite yet. But certainly just putting any kind of scoring mechanism or any kind of, uh, you know, scoring against your journey probably makes a lot of sense. It allows you to at least measure the effectiveness of what you do. 
The last one, number seven, lucky number seven, uh, sales and marketing alignment. So 89% of companies that align their sales and marketing lead nurturing efforts report a measurable increase in the number of sales opportunities generated. So again, this is a little, uh, I guess, misleading because we don't really have sales people per se in hospitals. I mean, you do have people that obviously call on physicians and do kind of physician relationship management kind of stuff. I could see how, you know, potentially we could, we could call some, you know, salespeople, people call on employers, you know, large employers in town, the physicians, et cetera. And it's probably a good point really now that I kind of hear it out loud that, you know, those folks, you know, work together a little closer. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and it goes for every, every one of your audience. And definitely this leads to the whole necessity of integrating your marketing, your digital marketing efforts with your call center when you're doing consumer outreach, because certainly that is the touch point. If you're driving people to make appointments, you definitely want to connect your systems and coordinate with them so that you're working together. The last thing you want to do is go out with a big marketing campaign and don't inform your call center about it because they might get an influx of calls if you do your job right. And they have no context as to why. That is very true. And then they can't nurture it very well, right? They can't classify it. They can't, you know, you go back to point six, the lead score, and they can't qualify what's coming through. We're getting near the point where we're going to send it over to an interview that I did with Greg Gossett, who is with HeartAware, and he uh, he's talking about how HRAs are used as part of lead nurturing, and he goes into a little bit more about what health risk assessments are and how they all work together. But before we do, let's close this out with a really good blog post by another well-known uh, entity, well-known company out there that does lead nurturing and CRM, and that's eVariant. Absolutely. This particular post, blog post of them uh, by them, is called Arming the Marketer, Getting Started with Nurturing in Healthcare. So now we're kind of moving to specific to our industry, specific to hospitals and healthcare organizations by a company that works in that space. They define three phases of nurturing in healthcare, and they also provide some tips on get started. The first phase read is what they call foundational nurturing. And that's typically occurs in the acquisition phase. They say that during the acquisition nurturing phase, the marketing department will use tactics like email marketing or other things, direct mail perhaps, to bring prospects into the health system. This is like sort of the first phase of nurturing where you're taking people that are anonymous and you're converting them to be somewhat known. And the whole point of this phase is to get leads that don't initially convert or progress quickly and start to learn a little bit more about them. Maybe start to understand their preferences. Maybe just you know get a little bit of information like maybe their age or even taking just their email and their name and maybe adding on things like their zip code or their, their address, whatever. That's in that first phase of foundational nurturing. From there, they move into our, you know, the, the, the lead, if you will, moves into the intermediate stage or the operational engagement phase. I, I think this is where marketing starts to kind of lose uh, track to, in, in most cases, right? Yeah. But it's still a place that marketing participate. They talk about that actually in here. This is still the preclinical conversion, as they call it, but it's still communications. There still needs to be consistency with message and things like that. So you think about like call centers, you think about event registration, um, reminders, appointment reminders, direct mail uh, as a follow up, 
for example, to a seminar, things like that, even potentially pre-op instructions. So again, especially when you get to pre-op instructions, I feel like marketing has long since been out of the equation. After acquisition, it does not mean that we're finished. Getting them to actually make the appointment, then getting them to actually show up to the appointment. I mean, all of these things are very critical. And in this intermediate nurturing phase, that's really where you can use nurturing as a way to really help close that loop, so to speak. And that could be anything from sending them an email after they make an appointment at your call center, maybe even putting an iCal attachment to that email so they can quickly add it to their phone. I mean, all of these things are ways that you can actually heighten up that nurturing phase in that intermediate stage. So then you get to advanced nurturing, which this blog post refers to as the post-clinical retention phase. They say it's the final nurturing phase aims to keep the health system top of mind for patients in a post-clinical phase. So this is that whole thing about where you follow up with people after they have care with you and keep them engaged, keep your organization top of mind. We marketing in most cases or in a lot of cases have lost the consumer at some point previous to this. They've gone into clinical, had something. We don't pick back up the baton typically on the back side of this, which is what we're talking about here, post-clinical. So follow-up phone calls, you're trying to reduce readmission, obviously, is a, is a big piece there. You know, again, how consistent are we? Are we talking about complementary services, patient experience type things? I, you know, there's, there's lots that we can do here. I think it's interesting, though, to think, how do we know when to pick back up? I think that's the real important question. And Reed, you and I have talked about this often, about how the role of marketing is starting to blur the lines into operations. This is another blurring of the lines here. If we could use the tools of nurturing that's decidedly a marketing-type activity or an, even a digital marketing activity and start to bring that into the operations and teach them best practices, I think that's where the future of lead nurturing will be for hospitals. Now, in the interview we're about to go to, Greg Gossett from uh, Hardware will talk about health risk assessments and how he's seen the role of these health risk assessments play in not only marketing and lead acquisition, but how they're starting to get into the population health world. So why don't we give that a listen after the short break? Are you struggling with online reputation management? Binary Health Analytics provides healthcare systems, hospitals, and physician practices a complete view into managing patient feedback from online ratings and reviews and especially surveys. It continuously mines feedback for sediment, uncovering timely and actionable insights. Its management tools help turn these insights into an opportunity to increase patient engagement, manage reputation, and improve patient experience. To learn more about Binary Health Analytics, visit Binary Fountain online at binaryfountain.com. That is binaryfountain.com. All right, welcome back to the Ask the Expert section of the podcast. And today I'm excited to be talking to a person I just recently got to know. But um, I'm really impressed with some of the stuff that you shared with me uh, at the last conference and excited to have you on the show. Greg, welcome. Thanks for having me. Great, glad to be here. Well, Greg, I know a little bit about you, but do you want to share your background, some of your experience? So I'm CEO of HealthAware. 
We're a patient engagement technology company. We've been around for about 13 years. Uh, I've been doing patient engagement technology for probably over 20 years. I have a degree in psychology and I run a technology shop, so I'm in the perfect business um, right now. But I got into early disease detection I was working with a large heart hospital in the Midwest, and I was a consultant, and they were asking me how we can get more patients to the chest pain center, if you remember those days. One of the doctors, Dr. William O'Neill there, said, hey, we've got a 16-slice CT. Can we use that for better early detection? And so we ended up creating a predictive model using the Framingham score just to uh, see who who would be a best fit for a cardiac scan. And I put my father through it as a guinea pig. Um, he was 62 at the time. He had no symptoms. He was 6'4", healthy. And he ended up, long story short, ended up having two 90% blockages and had no symptoms. And so um, naturally, stents were put in right there, and he's still alive today. And I, I became passionate about this. I became very much a believer that, that, you know, that this is the win-win where the hospital gains market share. The patient uh, sees appropriate necessary care that they weren't going to seek. And it's, it's good for everybody. So HeartAware was born. And then after that, now we have 25 different awares serving all the different service lines of the hospital for early disease detection um, and patient engagement, especially around population health. Well, I love the way you called this patient engagement technology. Is that a term you coined? Well, I don't know. I've never thought about that. I coined it, but I use it a lot because patient engagement can be used so many ways, right? I mean, we hear it like billing technology and revenue cycle, and everybody wants to engage the patient for whatever they're trying to get. But I mean, we're really focused on uh, behavior change, um, especially with population health in place now. How can we engage the patient more, drive them toward appropriate necessary um, um, behavior change, even self-care? And in the process, let's, in the process of engagement, we're going to form a relationship and acquire that patient when the time is right. Well, yeah. And the use of health risk assessments in that kind of context really plays into something that we always talk about in healthcare, which is around the sales cycle or what we're doing from a marketing perspective to fill the funnel, so to speak. The application of like these patient engagement tools, technology tools in your digital strategy. What are your thoughts around that? I look at the healthcare industry and you think of the sales cycle in any other industry and there's marketing and there's sales. There's marketing to generate leads and sales closes the deal. A healthcare does not have a sales function and it shouldn't have a sales function, but it's what it creates then is a void of how do we really focus on converting? What does that conversion mean? The HRA and there's certain patient engagement technologies that actually really are sales automation. Um, They're driving better and more accurate conversions versus lead generation. Those are two very different activities that marketers have to realize. We're generating leads. That's great. There's a cost to acquire each lead, and then we're going to convert those leads, and there's a cost to convert those. So the the HRA really drives and takes the, acquires the lead, and then actually um, helps convert that using very precise calls to action, which in my opinion is the sales automation function. We are moving in healthcare from a fee-for-service to more of a value-based approach. And us marketers, we see our jobs changing a little bit here. Tell me a little bit of how you feel the role of these patient engagement technology tools play in this uh, transformation that that we're undergoing. In some cases, I'm I'm having conversations with the hospital CEO, let's say, and 
And, and she'll say, we don't want the HRA or these engagement technologies to drive cardiac caths. We don't want the majority of our leads and our conversions to be into interventions and hardcore cardiovascular services. We want more outpatients. We want to help prevent disease more and show that we're preventing it. And in the process, we will form those good relationships. And I would say that's the minority of conversations right now. The majority, especially in the marketing departments, most of them I'm, are still saying, I hear it's coming. I hear this is going to be important for us. We, we need to gear up for it. But right now I'm, I'm tasked with market share growth and new patient acquisition, period. I'm seeing a transition where the executives are creating this vision to move toward population health. And, you know, I think it's still trickling down to some of the marketing circles. It's not quite as prevalent. Well, yeah, it's kind of like we have a foot in both camps, so to speak. We know that it's better to work on population health related initiatives. And that term is a little bit loaded. I'm not talking about pure pop health here. But certainly in terms of smart guidance towards outpatient facilities to even um, virtual solutions or, or things that are much more convenient. But when we look at HRAs and the role that they play in this kind of this transformation, uh, certainly we could see the value of that from driving volume. But tell me a little bit about what some other challenges there are. I think one of the beauties of an HRA in today's kind of dichotomy, population health slash fee-for-service world, where we got our feet in both worlds, is that this is one of the tools you can use that actually um, does provide community education, does provide self-care support, does provide risk factor reduction, um, education and tips and tools for the consumer, but it also provides doorways for those who say, I need more help. That, to me, is the perfect solution that solves both issues where you're growing market share but still really um, solving population health. All right. Well, so HRAs are the silver bullet then, right, Greg? That's all we need, and we're all good. The way you described it, it's very Pollyannish, right? We're, we're all good. I we're, wish we're it were that good, good right? <laughs> well, tell me a little bit about like some of the challenges certainly we're facing with these HRAs. First of all, I think the, the, the main challenges that I see is really just consumers see health risk assessments a lot more than we think. Uh, I mean, Chris, you have insurance, right? Have you taken an HRA for your insurance? I may have taken one a couple of years ago, but not recently. Usually every year or couple of years, most consumers are taking one for their insurance. A lot of employers require it. And so you have what I call HRA fatigue in the market. There's also lots of free ones out there. There's American Heart Association offers, you know, these educational ones, but those are purely educational. Then you have the employer focused ones, which are purely focused on cost reduction opportunities. But either way, the consumer is seeing these out there. They're looking for them. And so it's really important if a marketer does an HRA, they have to be very clear what's in it for me, telling the consumer what's in it for me, how long is this going to take? Because what's really interesting is the HRA, over the past three years, we've watched the average HRA user complete an HRA within three in 2016, it was four and a half minutes. Today, it's almost two and a half minutes. So the consumers are moving really fast to these questions. They're more educated. They have less time. And they're doing other surveys too. I mean, financial health surveys are just, there's a lot of things like this in the market. Still a a proven workhorse of lead generation or, or conversion, I should say. But you have to be really clear to the consumer. And if you're not clear to the consumer, you're going to see what's called the submission drop-off. That is, they're going to get to the end, and you're going to ask for their lead or their demographic information. They're not going to give it to you. 
you know, we typically see around 70 to 80% of the consumers who start our surveys will give us the information because we make sure we're very, very clear with them. If you're just throwing it out there, like know your risk and that's it, you're probably going to have about a 60% drop off, maybe a 40 to 50% drop off. But the second one I'm seeing is, um, and every marketer I talk to agrees with this, is that there's just not a good handoff right now. And this is probably true with any lead generation technique right now. There's really not a good handoff between lead acquisition and appointment scheduling. Most of the time, we just throw them over the fence to a call center, hope they schedule an appointment, and they're off and running with the clinical world. We really need to think through as an industry how we can begin to um, create more warm handoffs. I mean, every other industry does this. They, they, they give you a warm handoff to somebody else. And so you have a smooth experience. And, you know, I would say that that's probably not indicative of just our industry. There are other surveys, there are other things that we do, maybe with engaging with other brands. They're following the same challenges. If the survey or the test that I'm taking is not really relevant to me, and then at the very end, it feels like a bait and switch. I do drop off. The one thing that frustrates me the most about most surveys is that I'm not sure that it's actually doing anything. Like if my voice is actually giving input to fixing something or that I'm actually talking to a person. So I think that the challenges that you outlined are probably indicative of all industries, wouldn't you say? The, the underlying problem is really is what do we do with that person once we acquire their lead? Because... I mean, they've answered a bunch of very personal questions that they feel kind of vulnerable asking, you know, answering these, and then they give you the personal information to contact them. So now they're even more vulnerable. You're right. Other industries, nobody really does as well. They really, sh- but in healthcare, we should be very mindful because this is personal and maybe even embarrassing at times, depending on the questions you're answering. And uh, we should be creating a long tail experience after an HRA or after any kind of lead acquisition that says. I got your information. We care about you. Let's talk more. It's that conversation that we we talk about, the word conversation and journey we hear a lot that really, I think the marketers, we need to map that conversation into the HRA better. And that's definitely a challenge. So Harvard Business Review um, released a study recently on, I think, a very parallel experience with uh, the um, their financial health surveys. And so they looked at a number of banks a number of the consumers, they surveyed them regarding their financial retirement health, their current financial health, et cetera. And they were looking through just, you know, what what were the benefits? Uh, what happened with that survey? And in the financial industry, those that took a financial health survey were three times as likely to open a new account. They were less than half as likely to have defected or quit that bank. And they were more profitable than the customers who had not been surveyed. You know, the psychology behind it is surveys just, whether it's financial or healthcare, it increases the person's awareness of your products, your services, your brand. And most importantly, underneath the psychographic change is it induces them to form a judgment about your brand that normally otherwise wouldn't have occurred because they're creating an interactive you know, three, four minutes with your brand, with your experience, and you're giving information. So they're forming judgments about you. I come to think of it, my personal health information is almost as sensitive as my personal financial information. So that clearly makes sense. Just think about, I mean, okay, you're answering a question of heart awareness, and those aren't quite as sensitive, but we have hospitals now that are launching 
like bladder aware, asking, answering questions about your bladder performance. So we're asking personal, embarrassing questions to people, and they're absolutely going to form a judgment about your brand once they give you that information. When we talk about personalization or personalized information that we're sharing with these HRAs, there is a, quite a bit of data that you're collecting from people that are taking these risk assessments. What are, are, are there other opportunities that you see? Oh, with the data, you mean? Using the data? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, just forming the relationship with them. You, you understand, number one, when they become patients, what we're not doing right now is in healthcare is we're not taking the HRA data and looking at what did they self-report and what are they actually, what are the biometrics? Is this person really equipped to self-care downstream? Are they going to become a problem and if we're on the hook, if we have capitated reimbursements, then I want to know this person's going to respond well to care downstream, et cetera. And the health risk assessment is a perfect tool to create that. And we do have hospitals that actually are comparing the biometrics with self-reported metrics. And we are creating groups of people that are sort of high need, moderate and low need. So uh, I think health risk assessments are going to create, can create um, almost a psychographic profile for the clinicians who are caring for them downstream, which is so much farther than just like we've got, you know, a name and an address that HRA gave us a lead, on we go. Now let's take that person's information and use it to their benefit. And a perfect example is uh, people obviously underreport their weight. That's pretty common. But if they don't know their blood pressure or they've underreported their blood pressure, you can really help them become more aware and and follow them over time. So that's that's one area for sure that data can be used. And then secondly, I don't see a lot of the HRA data being used for really clear, precise measurement of downstream behavior. I see a lot of data being used for downstream measurement of charges and utilization. And we do propensity modeling and see where that's going to come up and how, much, how many dollars would they spend. But what I'm also seeing is um, when somebody takes a heart risk assessment, heart aware, 20% chance they'll end up in orthopedics. We've measured this over and over and over, and about 16% chance they're going to end up in GI. And everybody, I mean, the hospital right now, I mean, bariatric surgery is a very hot topic. As marketers, we're, we're not looking at, we're just looking at the tool and the outcome, but we should be looking holistically at the data from the patient and saying, this person is, you know, these people have the the likelihood to admit to GI, but yet all we're throwing at them is hard information. So we need to get better. If you're using an HRA, you, you really need to look at it as a fine-tuned vehicle, and you really shouldn't be looking at it as this presents one doorway to the consumer. An HRA should pr- produce you know, an infinite number of doors for the consumer wherever they're likely to go. Um, let them take that journey, and we just like facilitate it. Yeah, and it sounds like it could have a profound impact on not only business outcomes, but health outcomes. Again, back to the point, this is really truly a tool to measure patient engagement and ultimately to measure patient performance. And that's what we're all after here from a digital perspective, right? When you look at the risk assessment, again, I just see the industry using them um, in a too much of a basic fashion that when somebody with three, four, and five risk factors comes through one of our our risk assessments, they have a much lower charge per patient than somebody with six, seven, eight risk factors. 
And now an intuition as a marketer would say, hey, give me the high risk individual. Those are going to likely be patients or likely to convert if they don't have a physician. You know, that's what, you know, this is the, the low hanging fruit, right? Not really. No, because what's, what we're seeing is the, the high risk patient creates high charges per patient, but there's, uh, it creates a, a much lower volume of total charges because the population isn't as big. The people that have high risk are generally under the care of physician and they've got direction and advice. And so um, the call to action from nature isn't going to be as influential, but the moderate risk individual, their charges per patient are lower and their total charges are higher, meaning that we're doing more diagnostic work on them and there's a large, larger group of them. And so we see a much higher volume. So again, we need to use that data to say, hey, you are the moderate risk person that really is like the perfect population health and market share growth target for us that we can help you manage those risk factors. But if you need help, we're here for you. Hospitals really need to address, you know, their calls to action and their, what they do downstream based on the, the data that the user presents, not just did they give me their name or not. You know, you keep mentioning the data that the consumer presents or the self-reported data. I think that's an interesting perspective and a nuance, right? Because a lot of times when you think about implementing an online health risk assessment, it gets caught up in the legal department <laughs> Can you, because they're wondering, like you're, you're, you're brokering patient data, right? And you're saying, well, your digital marketing team has patient health data. <laughs> right. Tell me a little bit about your perspective on that. Yeah, that's uh, always a, a fun part of starting a relationship with a healthcare system is explaining ourselves to the risk management department or the legal group. Um, but, you know, this is a challenge that marketers have when they bring in new technology is what is it? What are we exposing here? Immediately, the legal department will usually assume we are, you know, collecting patient data. We're as high risk as an EMR. But, you know, quickly when we tell them this is self-reported data, so it is not diagnostic, it's not biometrics, it's not diagnoses or procedures. This is just voluntary information from the consumer. We still have to be HIPAA compliant. This is still um, protected health information that we're, we're dealing with, but it's not as sensitive as a diagnosis or procedure or, you know, the personal health record, as you spoke about in your recent podcast that has all that information like social security number and blah, blah, blah. We don't, you know, the health risk assessment is a much lighter weight um, set of data, um, but it still takes it takes a little while to, to convince the legal department this is what it is. And in the end, though, they go, cool, we've, uh, we like this, we're good with it. We've never, ever been um, you know, turned away at the gate because of the data, but it's always um, a slowdown for sure. But ultimately, what we're trying to do is improve the overall patient experience, so to speak. And maybe a patient's not quite the right word either because they may not be patients. Yeah, that's usually the other challenge, too, that HRAs is, um, you know, there's there's a, a large group of consumers that are not patients, and, and there's are those that are that are patients taking the risk assessments, and hospitals want to know, you know, is this person a patient or not? And secondly, the, the other challenge we just talked about was, you know, it's there's a lot of bait-and-switch surveys out there, and so the, the rate that people are giving you the data is declining. So you really have to have a good matching system. But otherwise, I mean, HRAs really should be treated as I'm, I'm dealing with consumers. These aren't patients at this point. I, I just want to provide a community service and bring them into some call to action or some you know, clinical intake process. Do you see the role of the HRA being more of a consumer engagement tool or more for the patients or a combination of both? What are your thoughts? 
I see this really becoming um, valuable for the patients for the, what we just talked about earlier, which is clinicians can use this and need to use this to understand their patient's perception of their own health. I mean, doctors, when they see the patients, they have a very limited amount of time with them. And they just really want to talk about the patient, the issue at hand, which is right for them. But there's a lot of intake. And so um, we are seeing it is both used by the clinicians as well as the marketers. Now, what has not been done yet is that is really the taking when the consumer takes the HRA to flow that all the way into their first patient, their first encounter, first experience with a physician if they're a new patient. But I would say that's very close in the horizon. And I believe that's a real blend between the marketing and the intake and the compassionate attraction of the customer to the hospital's brand. And then you just take that and that you've got a piece of their record to go with them into their first appointment. And then the physician can say, oh, I see what, you know, this is your perception of your health. Let's, let's take it one step further. And I, I think that's the right, that's the way patient care should go. Amen. You're preaching to the choir here. What a different way to frame the role of the health risk assessment in a digital marketing strategy or a digital strategy, I, sh- I guess I should say. I tend to romanticize it, um, but I really believe I, I really do believe it's the way it's perceived and used today is really, I think marketers can and should demand to go so much farther with them um, because that's what they're good for. And when we see marketers that really become sophisticated with them, the downstream results, we were just a one healthcare system, um, and they converted uh, almost like 25% of the HRA users, and 60% of those users were new patients. And it was being used in a conversational way. It wasn't just a flash in the pan, grab your name and go. Um, it was all the things we've been talking about were deployed, and the, and the payoffs were great. That's what I'm passionate about. And that's well, your passion comes through, Greg, for sure. And I really appreciate the conversation. It was really interesting, really informative. If people listening in want to learn a little bit more about you and your company, what's the best way for them to reach out to you? Two ways. Obviously, our website, healthaware.com. Always can contact us there, submit information. We can reach out to you. My LinkedIn information, my name is Greg Gossett. Anybody can connect with me on LinkedIn and ask a question, talk to me, call me, all my information is there. So either way, um, love to talk to anybody about this. Well, Greg, thank you so much for your time today and the great conversation. I really appreciated it. Yeah, Chris, this is great. I really appreciate it too. And the depth of your conversation is, was just energizing. So thanks. At Health Grades, Better Health gets a head start. They help millions of consumers each month to find and schedule appointments with their provider of choice. With their scheduling solutions and advanced analytics applications, they partner with more than 500 hospitals across the country to cultivate new patient relationships, improve patient access, and build customer loyalty. To learn more, visit them online at healthgrades.com. That is healthgrades.com. All right. Special thanks to Greg and all of his great insights. As he was talking about uh, online health risk assessments as patient engagement tools, clearly what he was talking about is how you could use health risk assessments as part of a nurturing phase in a hospital. So thanks again for his thoughts. 
Absolutely. I've, I've used HRAs historically with clients. They're great. They're great. So check that out. Be sure to connect with him and us, if you haven't already, on LinkedIn, Twitter, all the interwebs, uh, touchpoint.health. Go over, subscribe to the uh, the TPS report. It comes out every Monday. I would love to get your feedback on that as well. Uh, before we get to recommendations, a couple of quick plugs for where you might uh, might even catch us in person. The next one, September 8th through the 11th, right here in Nashville, where I live now, the annual Shishmet Connections Conference, the 2019 edition, uh, will be here in Nashville again, September 8th through the 11th, and you can sign up over on their website. If you are going to make it, let me know. I might just know of something you would want to attend or be invited to. So anyway, reach out to me for more information on that. Yeah, you got the Insight Connection down there in Nashville. Well, I might have the Insight Connection on the next conference that we're going to be at, which is in Rochester, Minnesota, on October 22nd and 23rd. That's the 2019 Mayo Clinic Social Media Network's annual conference. We're both going to be there. We go there. This is what, our maybe ninth, tenth year in a row now, Reed, that we've been doing this? Uh, I've lost track, but somewhere, somewhere in that neighborhood, yes. Well, I think by the tenth conference we'll be ready to buy, right? Isn't that what the isn't that what the <laughs> yeah. buying signal? Right? Yeah. Ten touch points. Yeah. Right. That's going to be a great conference. You're going to be doing a workshop. I'm going to be presenting, and we're both going to be recording a podcast at the show. And that's such a great conference if you ever want to learn about social media, kind of interact with uh, your peers. You just learn a lot. Plus, you're going to be on the Mayo Clinic campus, which is pretty awesome. Very awesome. I plugged this, I think maybe last time or the time before, but the art tour, some really cool artwork uh, been on that campus. And uh, so, so watch out, make sure you sign up for that. Finally, November 4th through the 6th, the down in sunny Orlando, Florida is this year's healthcare internet conference. Again, November 4th through 6th, healthcare internet conference, Orlando, Florida. Chris and I will be there doing the podcast, speaking, shaking hands, kissing babies, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> Be sure to track us down there as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's always a good time, the Healthcare Internet Conference. So, Well, before we, uh, before we get out of here today, maybe a couple recommendations. You know what? I'll go first today. I don't ever go first, but I'll go, okay. I'll go first. Let's Let's change it up. Let's shaking things up here. Thanks for people who are paying attention. Uh, moved into a new house, um, using that as an excuse to, to buy things. Um, and uh, most of my stuff is focused on technology. Imagine that, uh, are things that I enjoy. Not the television that I spoke of earlier, but uh, something else for the house. Uh, the Rachio is what it's called. But Rachio makes a home automation sprinkler system controller. Had a nice sprinkler system come with the house. It's got a nice controller. There's nothing wrong with it. However, it's uh, you know it's pretty manual. You set the zones and you know what schedule do you want it to run on. You got to kind of set up the days, you know, and all that all that kind of stuff. This much like installing a Nest thermostat or something like that, you simply just swap the wires over to uh, this particular controller. Pop open the app, and you can actually uh, customize every zone that you have: the soil type, the slope, your tolerance for soil uh, moisture levels. I mean, all kinds of fun stuff. And it will then take into account 300 weather stations, satellites, and all this stuff. And, and it looks at uh, weather patterns and all these things, and dynamically sets up your watering schedule. Like for example, my sprinkler ran. Don't freak out for five hours last night. 
but not really. So each zone ran for like 20 minutes. So technically the sprinkler system ran for 20 minutes, but what it does is it made water for like two minutes and then it goes to the next zone and the next zone and the next zone and it comes back around. So what it's doing is it's letting it soak in and then it'll hit it again. And so it'll cycle through all the zones multiple times versus just running them all once and end up with a bunch of runoff and things like that. Anyway, it's just really cool. It's just got some neat features. If it, you know, if it sees it's going to rain, it'll skip your watering. You know, it may, because of your sprinkler heads, run one zone longer than another zone because of the the type of head or the soil, or if it's a bed versus turf. Anyway, all kinds of fun stuff. Anyway, it's Rachio, R-A-C-H-I-O. Who would have thought that the little kid from Karate Kid would grow up to make these smart sprinkler yeah, systems? Yeah, Ralph Rocchio, right? That's him. <laughs> anyway, that's a great recommendation. All right, Reed, my recommendation. Um, my wife and I are planning a European vacation. Whoa. You're watching European vacation or you're going on a European vacation? We're going oh, on a okay. European right. vacation. Totally different. Okay, yeah, but it... Maybe we might watch it on the plane as we're going there. But still, we are a loyal customer of Delta. Have you ever used uh, the vacation service of some of the major airlines before? You know, I I have not. Well, we are using Delta Vacations to help us book important parts of our our trip. And we found it to be incredibly useful. So that's going to be my recommendation today. As we're looking, um, not only were we going to buy our flights on our airline, because we're loyal to our airline, we got kind of hooked up to their vacation package. And we were able to to save ourselves so much money for hotels while we're over there. In fact, cheaper than going on an Airbnb. Wow. And they're in really good locations, you know, really kind of stand up hotels that we're going to be at in the different cities that we're going to be. There's all these other amenities and packages that you you can do as well that are part of this Delta vacations package, little add-ons that they do. And they're little tiny offers that they offer for various different things. And I'm telling you, you can get in and you can customize this vacation. We're going to be gone for a few weeks. We definitely sat around and, and, you know, really customized all the different elements. We kind of looked where we're going to do. And we're using Delta vacations as sort of the, the way to kind of connect some of the major pieces. Now, I'm not saying that you do everything through your vacation package. You want flexibility for sure. But when you're talking about any kind of big ticket items, chances are you're going to get a good deal by using it. So that's going to be my recommendation. Delta vacation. Very nice. Yeah, it's a good idea. You know, in high school, I worked at a travel agent. I'm not sure. Do those exist anymore? Are there travel agencies? Is that a thing? They do. Yeah. But there's probably very few of them yeah, now. Yeah, probably. I loved that job. That was a lot of fun. But that's cool. That's very cool. We all, y'all will, uh, I'm sure, have a good time. We'll hear more about it. Awesome. Great recommendation. Uh, another great uh, week of recording. If you've got ideas for a show, people that should be on the show or both, reach out to us. Let us hear from you, Twitter, LinkedIn, whatever it may be. I've had a lot of people reach out with uh, some really cool ideas and and specifically guests that should be on the show. And so that's uh, that's been amazingly helpful. And you'll hear from some of those guests here in the near future. But for this week... That's going to wrap it up. So for Chris Boyer, I'm Reed Smith. We'll see you next time. This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about this show and others like it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health.